Welcome back to A Prescription for Fair Drug Prices, a podcast by ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. My name is Jason Crowell, and I'm your host, and I'm joined once again by Steve Pearson, the president of ICER. In this sixth episode of our series, we're going to discuss cost-effectiveness as a way to determine the fair price of a drug. Hey, Steve, welcome back. Thanks, Jason. Nice to be back. Another day, another topic, huh? Absolutely. In our last episode, we started talking about who determines the price of a drug, and more importantly, the idea that we should price the value. That is, we should set the initial price for a drug in alignment with the benefit that it provides. So, Steve, you told me to bring my suit of armor. I've got that on. I've got my calculator. I'm ready to jump in. Last week, you introduced this idea of cost effectiveness as a tool that can help us align the price of a drug with the benefit it provides. But I, I think we need to spend a little bit more time talking about what you mean by cost effectiveness analysis. That seems a bit abstract to me. Uh, you and most uh, normal human beings, um, <laughs> which is part of the problem. I think I said, yeah, I said, uh, bring cost effect, a calculator, a suit of armor. I probably could have said, uh, bring a, a, your brain and your heart because <laughs> okay. all have to be involved because you have to realize what cost effectiveness can do and what it can't do. Let me try to give a brief overview of, of it. Uh, and it's really hard because just the term cost effective is used, you know, by, by normal people, by everybody. And sometimes it means, oh, it's, you know, it's cheaper and just as good. And that is cost effective, but it's not really what cost effectiveness does. What cost effectiveness analysis does is it tries to compare the outcomes and the costs of two or more alternative approaches to care. So there's a lot baked into that. Think of it as, in some ways, if you can see it, it looks like um, a decision tree for those who have done that kind of algorithmic thinking, where let's say we have a patient with heart disease and we have two different treatments, treatment A and treatment B. If they take treatment A, they're gonna have, based on the evidence, a certain uh, chance of, of kind of reduced heart attacks. They might, however, have a certain percent chance of having a side effect. And you basically build into your cost effectiveness analysis those percent you know, probabilities of getting different outcomes at each step of the way as the patient proceeds through a pathway of care. So again, this can get really complicated because the pathway of care might be years and years long to really be able to capture the full outcomes of a treatment. One that, say, it prevents strokes 20, 30 years downstream, you need to build a cost-effectiveness analysis or model that goes out that far. And with each step, each outcome, again, we have to say, well, cost-effectiveness is supposed to be comparing the outcomes and the cost. What, what do you mean by outcomes? Well. This is where, again, it can get somewhat contentious, but people usually say, well, what we're trying to do with healthcare is to improve health. And health is kind of either helping people live longer or making them feel better. So we've kind of got length of life and quality of life as the two main outcomes, if you will. Somehow we have to get to there. Even if the evidence we have doesn't say quality of life equals X, it might say bad rash. Um, it might say, uh, can walk uh, longer without getting fatigued. It might have all these kinds of functional outcomes. At the end of the day, cost effectiveness usually tries to wrap that up into some measure of quality of life. 
um, and of length of life. So you go back to your analysis where you've been charting out each step of the way for each treatment. And that means that, let's say there is a side effect. You have to decide, wow, how much does that side effect um, affect someone's quality of life? And do we know that, again, if they're living longer on average or not? Remember this average business about populations, we're really talking not just about one patient walking all the way through this pathway of care, we're talking about a kind of a hypothetical hundred or thousand or hundred thousand representing kind of average outcomes for the population. So cost effectiveness can, again, look at that. And by the way, for each of those outcomes, not only do we assign a quality of life score, but we assign a cost. So sometimes, uh, you know, a side effect might not cost anything extra. Sometimes, however, it might require an extra doctor's visit or a different treatment or something like that. On the other hand, if a drug is doing um, good things for us, we might have reduced costs by having you know, to need fewer doctor's visits or preventing hospital you know, visits, those kinds of things. So a cost-effectiveness analysis has to be very kind of almost molecular in looking at each little step along the way and each outcome and putting a quality of life score on it and a cost score on it. But then at the end of the day, what a model does, a simulation model, is that it sums all these up through the entire pathway for treatment A, does the same thing for treatment B, and then compares the two. Because ultimately, what we're really doing cost-effectiveness for is to compare different pathways of care, different options of care. We're not comparing people, we're comparing different options of care and ultimately saying which one produces the highest health at the end of the day, and, and at what cost? It could be that it creates more health and is less expensive. Boy, when that happens, basically cost effectiveness has hung a gold medal on your, your, your neck um, if you're a treatment, and we should be basically mailing this to everybody's door and saying, do it. You know, we should send people out to encourage you to take that drug. Wow, more effective and costs less. Rarely we'll have treatments that are less effective and cost more. That's the opposite, right? That's kind of a no-brainer. Why would any doctor, patient, or anybody <clears throat> want something that's less effective and more expensive? So most of the reason we do cost effectiveness is because we're in that zone where, yep, treatment A is better than treatment B. At the end of the day, we sum up all of these good things and bad things, and we think it's overall better for us. And again, remember, it could be different for individual patients, but on average, we're talking about doing this to help figure out what a fair price is. So overall, treatment A is a little better than treatment B. And it costs more because either it's a more expensive treatment or again, all these other cost features in the cost effectiveness model might play out that it's more expensive. So then we're left with the ultimate question that cost effectiveness kind of helps you ask yourself, which is, is that added benefit that we're getting worth that cost? Or alternatively, at what price would I be willing to pay for this, for this added benefit? And if we're pricing to value, that would mean I'd be willing to pay a fair amount, a pretty good amount, if the benefit is a lot. If I'm getting a lot out of treatment A and it's a lot better than treatment B, I wanna pay a lot more for treatment A. But if it's just a smidgen better, then maybe it's just a smidgen more expensive than B in terms of its pricing. So that's a lot of what we talk about. And I've left out some of the particulars around how we kind of sum up the health outcomes between side effects and length of life. So maybe we'll talk about that in a second. But let me pause now 
because there's a fair amount still to talk about, but I think I've, I've been able to describe the basic guts of what a cost-effectiveness analysis is trying to do. Yeah, I think so. I saw in the news this morning that Keanu Reeves is taping The Matrix 4, and it makes me think about The Matrix, the red pill, blue pill kind of thing, right? So we have these two options. You have to pick one of the options, and whereas typically in medicine, we're just thinking about clinical outcomes, you're looking at the clinical outcomes, both benefits and side effects, but importantly, you're also looking at the cost associated with those to see how much benefit do we get for the cost. Is that right? Yes, although I must admit you had me at Keanu Reeves. I don't think I've ever <laughs> talked about cost effectiveness and had the next thing be something about Keanu Reeves and the Matrix, but I'll, I'll buy it. I'll take yeah, it. They're actually um, very, very closely related. Yes, and, um, and so that, that's, exact, that's exactly right. So I guess one of the questions I have is this sounds really um, like an evidence-based activity. And so when you're thinking about the benefits of drugs, is this just the same thing as like the outcomes or the endpoints from these drugs, clinical trials, or what do you mean by benefit? Yeah, so let, let's go further into that because there are different uh, styles of cost-effectiveness analysis. We can, for instance, if we have two drugs and they really just do one thing, they prevent strokes. We can do an analysis that, and one drug is more expensive and it's more effective. We can say, you know, on a, over a thousand patients, you know, we're gonna prevent more strokes with treatment A. Um, and it's going to be more expensive, but I can boil that down to say for every extra stroke I'm going to prevent with treatment A, we're going to spend an additional $10. And people would say, wow, that seems like a pretty good deal, right? Prevent a stroke for $10. So you can just stop there. You can say preventing strokes. You can say my main outcome is to improve or to lessen pain by a certain extent. Um, I want uh, more days free of depression. In each individual clinical area, you can do cost effectiveness and just focus on the functional or specific clinical outcomes that doctors and patients are focused on. But cost effectiveness is also helpful because rarely does life come that neatly packaged. Because again, what if, yeah, we want to prevent strokes, but one drug has side effect of diarrhea or you know, dizziness or something else. And suddenly we need to kind of blend in the good things that the drug does with side effects and it, and it gets messy. So it's still, again, quite possible to, to focus in just on kind of very patient-centered um, or kind of relevant outcomes and, and focus in just on that. But cost-effectiveness helps you look at the broader picture, which is often very, very important for, for many kind of treatment areas. The other thing it allows you to do sometimes is... Uh, and this is what kind of national systems of drug uh, kind of negotiation do, is you wanna have one approach that kind of allows you to compare apples to apples to apples. I wanna be able to say, what's a fair price for a drug for depression? Um, if I'm gonna be kind of fair, I can't just say what's a cost for a, a day free of depression, because then how do I use that tool when I'm saying what a fair price is for a drug that prevents stroke? I have to have some kind of equal currency, if you will, or common language across different treatment areas. I'm so scared that you're about to get wonky on me and use the word quali. Are you about to say quali? I will. I will. <laughs> it's about to happen. It's, you, I mean, people on this podcast, we, we've taken however many podcasts it's, it is to get to this point. But yep, you, you've swallowed the red pill and you're now in quali land, I'm afraid. Okay. So 
here's where we are. So you're right. So, um, and I'll be careful. I won't get too close to the chalkboard and inhale too much chalk. It's, it's dangerous. Please. But I'll try to stay real here. So basically, what do patients and doctors care about? Some of it is, again, some combination in order to talk about length of life and quality of life. And that's what a quality adjusted life year does. It puts the two, it ranges the two together. It uses surveys to decide how much does a year of life added, you know, kind of to your life matter compared to uh, a year with severe diarrhea and hair loss. And, and, and people have to make really tough judgments around what matters more, how much would I weigh one versus the other. And you kind of use those surveys to weight the different features of the outcomes, both good and bad, that different treatments provide, and it sums up to a quality. So you never want to just jump to the quality without examining each of the steps along the way. Again, the depression-free days, the uh, kind of prevented strokes, you have to see that as it kind of ultimately gets condensed into a quality. But when you do get a quality, it allows you to at least make some empirical comparison of the benefits of, of treatments across different treatment conditions and between drugs, even in a single treatment condition that might have very different types of side effects and benefits. So this is something again, that certainly doctors in oncology are familiar with um, all the time. There are trade-offs between side effects and potential benefits of length of life. And a, a quality is one way to try to sum that up. Not again, not when you're trying to figure out what to do for your individual patient, you ask them, how much do you care about diarrhea and hair loss compared to the chance to live longer? That's an individual decision about whether to take that drug versus another drug. But if we're talking at a system level about what a price would be for that drug versus other drugs, both in oncology and elsewhere, to be fair, to use that word again, we really do want a tool that we can use to compare across treatments. And we really do want to embed the idea of pricing of drugs and what counts most for patients, which is length of life and quality of life. There are other things, and we'll talk about those too, and contextual issues, but that kind of is the foundation of what cost-effectiveness is and its general approach to helping at least suggest a range of prices that might fairly align with the benefits to patients. All right, so as you've explained it so far, I, I, I feel like I grasp one half of the equation, right? So if we're talking about kind of the benefits over the cost, I understand the benefits and the qualities and, and, and thinking about how the quality and the quantity of a patient's life uh, is helped. But is this just the same thing as the net or the list price of the drug? Or what other costs could there be associated with, with taking the blue pill or the red pill? Well, that's, that's an important feature of cost effectiveness that I, uh, I think and many people think is a, is a benefit of it because it, it, it provides um, a broader frame on what we care about um, on costs. So and in, our, in our tangled spider's web, it could very well be that the pharmacy benefit manager is not responsible for worrying about what's happening with hospital costs or doctor visits or other costs. They're just worried about saving money on drugs. And so to them, the cheaper drug is the cheaper drug. But for patients and truly for the health system and for society, what we want is to view drugs as a part of the alternatives of care that we face. And if they are expensive, but they prevent hospital stays that are even more expensive, then we wanna recognize that. And we want to 
send a signal to innovators too, to the drug makers. Remember, pricing is, is, is partly a tool to reward people for what they've already done, but it also sends a signal to those who are thinking about what they're gonna do in the future. And we wanna send a signal that the price will reflect the impact of your treatment across the health system. Um, and so we do wanna capture the costs of hospitals, doctors, other tests and treatments. And we include that in a cost effectiveness analysis to make sure that we're looking at the big picture. So one of the ways that this seems difficult to me is that it seems like you'd have to make lots of assumptions about, say, for example, how well the drug is going to work for a population of patients, what all patients are actually going to take the drug, the cost associated with different clinical outcomes, frequency of hospitalization, how much that would cost. So how can you make all these different assumptions without tipping the scale one way or the other? It seems like a difficult thing to do. Yes. I mean, it's, the, the question is, is honestly not whether cost effectiveness is, is perfect because it's not, partly because just as you said, we have tremendous uncertainty often or almost always actually when drugs, especially when they're new um, and even later, we may still have lots of uncertainty about their longer term effects. Um, on the other hand, from day one after FDA approval, doctors and patients are making clinical decisions about whether to use it based on uncertain information. And there will be a price for that drug. Whether we think that we have a lot of uncertainty or not, there's gonna be a price. And so the question is whether cost effectiveness at least gives us some better information to work on than kind of throwing up our hands and saying, well, we can't do this. So you know, back to just letting the market, if you will, or the lack of a real market you know, kind of work or not work, depending on your perspective, um, to come up with pricing. So cost effectiveness analysis though, because of the way it's run, with different simulations, you can vary the assumptions. And this is actually a, a standard part of cost effectiveness analysis is to take every one of the inputs that you have in your, your model and vary them and see how much of a difference it makes to the final answer. Because sometimes you find that actually, wow, I can even vary how much it affects, uh, you know, the quality of life is affected by a rash um, as one of the outcomes here. And it actually doesn't end up making that much of a difference to the big picture cost effectiveness because there are many other bigger things going on. And so again, we do those kinds of variations they are called sensitivity analyses um, to kind of learn about how stable, if you will, the cost effectiveness findings are. Um, but this is a, a common feature of cost, I mean, a common criticism of cost effectiveness. And it's one of the reasons also that it's important, I think, for cost effectiveness to be done um, by groups that don't have strong financial conflicts of interest with either insurers or drug makers. Um, it's important for the methods to be as transparent as possible and for you know, people to have a chance to weigh in and kind of peek inside and see what's going on. Because ultimately there are going to be assumptions made um, that will influence what we think is a fair price. But I still think and many people think that if we're going to get serious about trying to price to value, it's better than, than any other approach that we have. All right, Steve, so I understand this idea of pricing a drug uh, to its value, but how do we understand um, how, how much will allow for an incremental benefit? So if, if A, you said earlier, if A is just a smidge better than B, well, how do we know how much of a smidge to raise its price? Great question. Um, and now I have to introduce another one of those uh, jargony words, which is cost effectiveness threshold or sometimes called the incremental <clears throat> cost effectiveness ratio or threshold. Because this basically is the idea that we do have to make some kind of judgment 
around if this drug is improving health by um, having fewer side effects, and we can measure that in a quality, how much are we willing to pay for that? We can see how much better it is by looking at the number of the quality, but we have to make a decision around how much higher cost or price overall are we willing to pay for that? So this actually takes us all the way back to one of our first podcasts where we talked about trade-offs and opportunity cost, because ultimately we could say, well, you know, let's let people decide how much they're willing to pay for this, individual people. And when you do that, there have been lots of academic studies of this. Guess what? Rich people are willing to spend more for health than poor people for lots of reasons. They've got more disposable income. They can spend a ton on health and still have plenty left over for rent, food, and everything else. Poor people can't. So we could have a country in which we decide you're your own individual threshold walking around, or we're gonna have health plans that have different thresholds and we'll have one for rich people and one for poor people. Um, unfortunately, some people think that we do almost do that, but not honestly by the way that Medicaid and other benefits are structured to not be as rich, if you will, or as broad as other benefit designs. That being said, I think in the United States, we're still, we would still be really uncomfortable saying that rich people you know, should be able to kind of have higher health you know, care than others explicitly. So we wanna come up again with this idea of an average. And that's where looking across the health system, academics um, have looked at the idea of opportunity cost. If we spend for health, and that by health, let me just use that term quality, because there are other things that are involved in health, but let's assume that quality is the core piece of that. Then we can basically say, if we're going to spend more money for more health in this treatment area, is there an opportunity cost? Where's the money coming from? What's gonna to happen to health insurance premiums? And there's been academic work now that has shown that largely in our healthcare system where we don't have fixed budgets, what happens is that health insurance premiums go up as we spend more for healthcare, just to cover it, right? And that's okay if we're getting health at a, at a, at a at, if you will, at the price, that doesn't mean that people who have to pay that higher insurance premium are suffering more health loss because they have to delay their care or now they're having to face a higher deductible and you know they, they, they ration their own care, that kind of thing. So if you can, again, kind of close your eyes and imagine that you're looking at the patient in your office and thinking about spending more money in the health system to help care for that person, that's a good thing. But a cost-effectiveness threshold is supposed to represent the price at which, the top price at which we can pay for that health gain for that patient in the office without doing more harm elsewhere in the system to people we can't even see, but who will suffer health loss because a certain number of people, we know this from academic work, will have to drop insurance, forego care, delay care, ration care as healthcare premiums go up. So to do that balance, that's where a cost effectiveness threshold comes from. And fortunately, the work through a different number of different varieties of avenues to try to capture what that number actually is, comes up with a relatively consistent answer. It's somewhere around $100,000 per additional quality adjusted life year. Now, believe me, that doesn't mean that we're looking at one patient and we're saying your life is worth $100,000 for one more year and that's it. We're not gonna spend more than 100,000 for you, period. 
It doesn't work that way. Again, this is over populations. It's over numbers of patients who will benefit and won't benefit, who will get side effects, who won't get side effects. So it's easy to mischaracterize, honestly, as this kind of draconian, Malthusian tool to kind of say how much we're going to price your life at, you individual. But what it really is, is an attempt to step back and say, if we're almost being doctors for the whole system, for the whole population, and we believe that our first tenet really is to do no harm, we need to be cautious and aware that spending too much for health in one place in our health system does harm in other places where we may not even see the people. So that's the idea of the threshold, and that's why $100,000 per quality has arisen as a kind of very common standard if you want to use one, but many people will use two and create a range just to kind of, again, send the signal that it's complicated. We want to, we want to include some other considerations and contextual issues that I'm sure we'll talk about, but that we need to have some idea of a threshold if we're going to decide how much we're willing to pay for a certain benefit uh, of added health gain. All right, so Steve, you just mentioned um, other considerations. It sounds like that might um, be something that I, I need to keep the, the, the suit of armor on for. Is that what, what you're hitting at? Yes, absolutely. The quality is tough, but these other issues, they're the heart and soul of making a good decision about pricing and they get even more complicated. So keep your armor on and, and let's come back and talk about that. Okay, sounds good. That sounds like a place to pick up next week and we will see you then. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Jason. So again, in today's episode, the notion of determining a drug's fair price seems pretty black and white. If I know the drug's benefit and I know its cost, I can take up my calculator, do the math, and determine how cost-effective the drug is or not. But as we mentioned, what if I'm missing the full benefit that a drug provides? What if it provides other benefits that aren't captured in typical cost-effectiveness analyses? So in our next episode of A Prescription for Fair Drug Prices, we're going to spend some time thinking about these other benefits that might influence a drug's price.